0: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, March 18th, 2014. I gotta tell you, today's program is gonna be a zinger. That's all I gotta say. The theme is repentance and restitution. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, today's program format is going to be slightly augmented, and the reason I say slightly is because, yeah, we're going to have hour one, and yes, we're we're going to do a sermon review at hour two, but we're going to review a good sermon in hour number two, so let's... Get right to it. We have a lot of ground to cover. Um, You know, all I can basically say is grab your helmet, uh, something to write with, a Bible, and we're going to get right to it. Uh, Earlier today, I recorded uh, a couple of interviews. One of the interviews I'm going to play on Thursday's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, But uh, one of the interviews was with Phil Johnson who's the right-hand guy of John MacArthur over at Grace 2 Ministries, and uh, a good friend of mine. And I uh, invited him on the program to talk about Mark Driscoll's repentance and the fact that there's so many people in evangelicalism who believe that Mark Driscoll's really repented and are rejoicing over his repentance, but uh, not so fast. He really hasn't repented. So I invited uh, uh, Phil Johnson on the program to discuss that. We will be playing that interview very shortly, Then we'll take a break. When we come back from the break, I am going to be playing for you a portion, not the the entirety, but a portion of a sermon delivered by Mark Driscoll on the story of Zacchaeus from the Gospel of Luke. Mm -hmm. And um, he talks about repentance and restitution and what real repentance supposedly looks like. And unfortunately... Uh, based upon what he has done in this uh, this apology letter that he's given us, um, he demonstrates that he preaches but does not practice what he preaches. Um, he's being hypocritical. So we'll let Mark Driscoll, in the second half of the first hour, tell us about the story of Zacchaeus and uh, what happened there. And I think you are going to find that what he says is sadly, and that, that's the only way I can say it, sadly ironic um, and my hope in praying – in not praying, but hope in playing this segment from the sermon you – know, I actually kind of cut it up into a few pieces and compressed it so it will fit in the uh, second half of the first hour – is that by playing this, the people who are fans of Mark Driscoll would see the problem and call him to repent. And that ultimately Mark Driscoll would hear himself preaching and he would repent – and make restitution for what he's done. And then in hour number two, we're going to do something rare here, and that is that we're going to listen to a good sermon midweek. Normally we save our good sermons for the end of the week. You're going to get two good sermons this week, um, you know, today and Friday, so I'm not going to jip you. I won't uh, make Friday a bad sermon. I can't do that. I can't end the week off on a bad sermon. But we're going to actually be listening to a sermon delivered by Phil Johnson on um, on what true repentance looks like. And he's uh, preaching through uh, Psalm 51. And so that's going to make up the totality of today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, with that, we're going to get right to it. Here's my interview recorded earlier with Phil Johnson. On the line, I got uh, Phil Johnson, uh, you know, c- c- Compatriot in crime with uh, John MacArthur, uh, uh, definitely a, a, an enemy of Strange Fire and things like that. Thanks for coming on uh, Fighting for the Faith. Hey, thanks for
1: having me, Chris. Good to be here.
0: Okay, Phil, I got to ask you, um, just straight up. I mean, you've read Mark Driscoll's apology letter. Um, do you think Mark Driscoll is repentant?
1: Well, I'm certainly not convinced he is. I think he's getting better at at you know, making people think that he is, I don't know how many times he's going to reboot himself before, you know, some of his fanboys say this, this doesn't look real. This doesn't look any more real than the last time. Right. Uh, You know, if someone is privately convicted by the Holy Spirit and and voluntarily repents of something that it's a clear cut sin, we believe him, right? right? I mean, every Christian I know would cut an enormous amount of slack to anybody who manifested that kind of heartfelt, genuine repentance. But w- we also know that guilty people do feign repentance. Yeah. And, and they especially tend to do that when they're caught red-handed or flat-footed in in some act of undeniable transgression. Mm-hmm. And and the principle of 1 Corinthians 13, 7, people keep citing that verse, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That That principle does not oblige us to believe something that really isn't just credible right and and when a person's repentance uh actually confesses to a lesser sin than we know he is guilty of that's just not a credible statement of repentance
0: yeah on my program yesterday i you know i took the pains to actually walk through uh the story of bathsheba and the murder of uriah the hittite and um, as I was reading through Driscoll's letter, and we and I read through the entire thing in the second half of the first hour yesterday, um, the thing that came to mind, it, it, it reminded me, is it would be like. If David was confronted by Nathan the prophet regarding his sin, clearly uh, he wasn't forthcoming with his adultery and murder. That was all, you know, hidden and brushed under the carpet. And there was a prophet who had to confront him. So, I mean, he didn't come clean on his own. Which is, you know, that repentance doesn't always require somebody to come clean on their own. But yeah, when- that's right. You know, when they're confronted, it, it's about owning your, your sin. And so in Driscoll's case, this is a guy who was caught doing something. He, it, he wasn't forthcoming on his own, which you know we understand sin operates that way. But it would be it like if Nathan the prophet confronted uh, David and David said, Yeah, all right, you caught me. Sure, I knocked up Bathsheba. I mean, and everyone, oh, look, David's repented. And Nathan would say, oh, wait, 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 wait. What about Uriah the Hittite? He's still missing. Yeah, I actually have a whole message on that very subject. Uh, it's probably
1: online wherever my sermons are. Uh, it, it's based on Psalm 51, which is David's expression of repentance. And and in that sermon, I don't remember the exact outline, but I, I, I point out from that psalm four signs that repentance is genuine and not phony. And they're things like this. David mourns his sin and not the consequences of it. Right. You know, he makes, uh, he makes a confession, not excuses, right. things like that, that that really. Uh, in fact, I, I did that message years ago in the wake of the Bill Clinton scandal, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm.
0: Uh, uh,
1: not, not as a response to that. But that's what was going on at the time. And it made such a stark contrast uh, uh, Bill Clinton's style of repentance. But that Clinton-esque style of repentance has more or less become... The default method of repentance among evangelicals—it's sad. Yep. I listened to part of your broadcast yesterday. You also pointed out uh, something valuable, I think, from the from the example of John the Baptist. That when you have a Pharisee with a selfish motive to feign repentance, it is perfectly appropriate to demand evidence that this
0: expression of penitent, penitence is is real. Exactly. I mean, you know, it. I'll give you an example that's kind of a bad example. Um have you read Nadia Bowles Weber's book? No. Okay. It it's 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 a little bit tough to get through, and um, you know, for, yeah. for obvious reasons. Um, um but in there uh, she describes uh, one of her congregants who is a is a guy who self you know basically identifies as homosexual. And um and in the book he he apparently has this big breakthrough, you know this this ginormous breakthrough in life, and he's come he's figured out how to come to grips with struggling against uh, his homosexual inclinations, and that is to not struggle against them at all, and declare to you know out into the world and to himself, I'm baptized, I'm forgiven, and <laughs> to which I would basically say. What does Christ's forgiveness mean in this context where you're going to basically turn it into a license to sin? True repentance of homosexual behavior is expressed in the fight against that temptation and in the fight against giving into that sin, not not conceding to it. You know, and with, with Driscoll, I mean what what exactly did he repent of? I still am kind of befuddled by the apology repenting thing altogether I mean granted I'm glad that he's no longer going to have the New York Times bestselling moniker on himself uh, which he sh- you know you know which of course if he really had scruples he wouldn't have done it in the first place but we don't want to go there now because we're dealing with a confessed sin but the the other issue is is that two hundred and ten thousand dollars in tithe money was spent in order to make him a New York Times bestselling author and he never addressed the money. Um,
1: yeah, you know, I, in fact, I read the letter, and and I would say even the even the confession, if you if you call it that, was a bit weak because he, he manages to make himself sound like uh, kind of the victim. He he, uh, he he does this throughout the letter. You know, he talks about the crushing weight of responsibility and his lack of a personal pastor. But when he gets to that part about the New York Times list, he makes it sound like he was sort of duped into doing that. That it was unwise. It was. It was a bad decision, and all of that. He, he he doesn't really address the heart of what it is that makes that so wrong, and that it's a, it's dishonest, and b, he used church funds to do it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, the church that I'm a member of. I mean, two hundred and ten thousand dollars is like you know, two years of of our budget. I mean I mean we you know we get by on you know, you know less than, you know a little less than half of that a year. But I mean, you understand what I'm saying. I mean this is a huge amount of money and, and I, I don't understand how he could not address this issue. Now let, let me throw this out there.
1: By the way, I go to a large church with a large budget, and two hundred ten thousand dollars would be a massive amount, even in our
0: church. Right. I mean, you could buy it a house with that.
1: Nearly a quarter of a million dollars.
0: Yeah, you could buy a home with you know two hundred thousand dollars, and and yet it's not even on the radar in his uh, in his thing. Now, let me ask you this, because uh, you know, on, in the wake of all of this, it, uh, uh, the uh, the guy who writes Pajama Pages, uh, uh, Doctor Duncan James Duncan, has uh, basically verified that uh, Perry Noble at New Spring Church uh, paid the same company Resort, Result Source to make him a New York Times best-selling author. And um, in, and which then, of course, Perry Noble and Stephen Furtick and uh, and Mark Driscoll—they're all buddies. And of course, now Stephen Furtick is a two-time New York Times best-selling author—one uh, for uh, you know the uh, greater book, and now for his new book, *Crash the Chatterbox*. Of course, both of those books only appeared on the New York Times bestseller list for one week, which basically says he's engaging in the same kind of chicanery uh do you think that uh for him to make a strong statement and say listen this was flat out a sin and completely dishonest using church funds to do that would in a sense end up with him uh, throwing perry noble and stephen furtick under the bus as well
1: yeah it would and and i think honestly if you if you face the gravity of a sin of that enormity uh it's something that uh, at least for a time, should provoke him to step out of ministry altogether. Right? It's one of those disqualifying sorts of lack—a lack of uh, integrity. That that you know, if he's going to confess to it, he, he he shouldn't be doing what he, what he actually did in that letter was say, you know, the, he, he himself is the one who's calling all the shots when it comes to defining both what his sin was and what its consequences are going to be. Right. That's not genuine repentance, you know, r- real repentance lets scripture define the nature of the sin and somebody else needs to define what the consequences are.
0: Right. The way I read it is, is that he, he basically... Jesus is supposedly the senior pastor of Mars Hill, and he and uh, – Jesus and Mark Driscoll decided Driscoll's punishment, and then it was rubber-stamped approved by their board of accountability. I've never heard or even seen a scheme like that uh, run in, in any organization even remotely calling itself Christian. No, but
1: but you have to, you have to see that that is the inevitable – uh, result of, of the notion that God speaks directly to him. He's a prophet. He thinks of himself as a prophet. I think he even calls himself a prophet in that letter. Uh, he sees himself as a prophet, and therefore, he's in control of w- what is said about this, what's going to be done about it, and all, because he and Jesus work it out, just the two of them together. And they have this accountability, whatever they call it. It it, it it's hard not to see that as a total sham, because it was set up in the wake of several moves that that so changed the leadership at mars hill because he, he actually got rid of everyone who who had any inkling to try to hold him accountable
0: right that's absolutely correct i mean people have found themselves um unceremoniously run over by the mars hill bus um you know for daring to challenge and or hold him accountable in the past and then this is just I mean, the problem with the dead bodies of Mars Hill is that they're not actually dead. They're not part of a parking lot somewhere in Chicago. And uh, these are people who are capable of speaking for themselves and telling their stories. Of course, some of the leaders who've been run out of Mars Hill have had these non-disclosure agreements uh, put on them, basically tying up a portion of their severance package to uh, their agreeing to basically not say anything. Um, and these, uh, you know, these severance packages, these non-disclosures, have made their way onto the internet at uh, Wenatchee the Hatchet, as well as Warren Throckmorton's uh, blog site. I mean, have you ever heard of a church basically requiring that uh, you you have to sign a non-disclosure if you're going to receive your your severance package after you know after you're leaving there? I mean, what what is this?
1: Yeah, I don't know, but but why would a church be fearful of? The truth. Right. You know, I, let's face it. People who are dismissed in situations, even from churches, do sometimes lie and spread rumors that are untrue and all of that. But the way to stop that is the way to fight lies is with the truth, not with uh, not with committing people to silence and, you know, non-disclosure agreements and all that sort of thing. It's just the the whole the whole sense of that is, is is contrary to a love
0: for truth. Right, and plus the laws against defamation of character, I mean, they apply to pastors as well. So if somebody leaves your church in, in a way that's not amicable and they end up slandering the pastor, a simple cease and desist from an attorney will clear that right up, basically accusing them of – you know, making it clear that if they continue to spread lies and defame the character of a person with something that isn't the truth, I mean, the laws are already there to protect them. Why would you force somebody to sign a non-disclosure, say anything, and we're going to require that you give your severance package back? Yeah,
1: you know, or you could just do what Jesus told us to do and, and gave us an example of, and that is when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He, he, he You know, blessed are you when... When uh, men speak evil of you and say all manner of untruths against you, for Christ's sake,
0: right? It's... Now let let's walk through a little bit of the history here, okay? Because you know what he didn't address is, as far as I consider, huge. It's still like you said, he he's confessed to kind of lesser sins, but hasn't addressed the bigger ones. Um, you were there when uh, when Driscoll showed up at the Strange Fire Conference. And- yeah, well, actually, I was
1: I was inside uh, teaching. He, he showed up during my session. <laughs> uh, so I was inside doing my teaching Well, he was outside causing a ruckus. So I didn't actually encounter him. I, I, I wasn't really there. I'm kind of like you and everybody else. I only know what I saw from the videos. But I do know that the videos contradicted what Driscoll himself claimed
0: happened. Right. No, he claimed that, you, you know, that your security guys there confiscated his books. And and, you know, and, and of course, the story, the, uh, you know, got out on the Christian Post rather quickly uh, regarding that. And then when the video came out, somebody with their uh, iPhone had actually videotaped it. Uh, what that video showed didn't um, actually fit uh, what he had said on, on social media. Um, yeah. Have you received any kind? Has John MacArthur received any kind of formal apology from Mark Driscoll admitting that he didn't speak the truth on social media regarding that event?
1: No, no, of course not. And, and in fact, I mean, this goes to the reasons for my suspicions regarding, you know, the 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 nature of this supposed expression of repentance. Uh, there, there's a a long laundry list of sins and transgressions that. Mark has never addressed. He, he, he Frankly, I have never heard a single convincing expression of repentance from him. In the past, in every single incident where Driscoll's defenders have claimed he repented, when it comes to the fruit of repentance, he fails. You know, he supposedly expresses regret for his failure to control his tongue. And then just a week later, he tells another inappropriate joke in a sermon and uses mild profanity and, and, and things like that. How many times is he going to talk about his anger problem if if as if that's a character flaw he just discovered, you know? Right. Uh, So. So. This is not the first time he said his young, angry prophet days are over or that he, he
0: recognized he needed to work on that. Well, maybe now now this time he really means it, that his angry young prophet days are over. No. Yeah, the problem is he's he's has
1: a well-established pattern of covering and lying rather than confessing honestly. You know, when he removed those Song of Solomon sermons back in two thousand nine, that's been five years ago now. Yep, he he tried to deflect criticism for that with the pretense of a mea culpa that was loaded with untrue statements. He he claimed that those. Were lectures that had been delivered in a small private setting and uh, to an older audience, and that they'd only been posted online by mistake just a few weeks before. Every line of that was false. He right. preached sermons in two churches with children present. There was video that proved that, and the video had been online for nearly two years.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, and then you know, by the way, you can't find that sermon now. I mean, the folks at Mars Hill have absolutely scoured the internet and scrubbed the internet. Of uh, of that Song of Solomon sermon, you can't even find it now. And if you post it, you know, they'll they'll file a you know a copyright claim against you.
1: Yeah, well, I'm kind of glad about that. It was so bad, I'm glad it disappeared. I, it, it just was a a cancer on the face of the Bride of Christ, frankly.
0: Yeah, but you know, the issue that you know the issue though is is that he didn't really repent of that. He just made sure to clean up after himself really well. Well, he covered it with a lie.
1: I don't think he even cleaned up with himself very well, but. He has this army of fanboys who, who who can't tolerate even the most who can't tolerate criticism of of even the most glaring default faults of uh, of Driscoll being pointed out. They they make excuses for everything outrageous that he does. They insist on interpreting every weak mea culpa as a full fledged expression of repentance. Yep you know i was surprised yesterday to see ray ortland adding his voice to that chorus writing about driscoll as if you know he's some kind of master in the art of repentance he, he's precisely who i would point to to say this is not the way you repent publicly for a public sin
0: right now uh, let's let's kind of walk through this elephant room too which i was uh, <clears throat> Basically, even though I paid a hundred bucks to attend it, I was told I, if I showed up, you know, if I came out on the property, they would arrest me for trespassing.
1: Yeah, I've always wondered, did they refund your yeah, registration?
0: They did okay. refund my uh, my registration money, but they didn't pay for my gas. So I was, you know, because I drove up from you know Indianapolis to Chicago, so they didn't reimburse me for the gas money. But you know, oh well. Um, but uh, you know, at Elephant Room 2, I mean, it was Driscoll who was the one in the driver's seat with TD Jakes. And uh, and, you know, and T.D. Jakes basically said, yeah, I believe in one God in three persons, as long as by persons you mean manifestations, which means he's still a modalist. And and it was Driscoll who gave him the right hand of fellowship. And despite all of the backlash on that, we haven't heard a single public peep from uh, From the mouth of Mark Driscoll regarding Elephant Room 2 and T.D. Jakes since then, despite the fact that he's at this... I mean, that, as far as I'm concerned, would disqualify any man from being a Christian pastor. Any man who, who had done that and not repented of it and, and warned the church about modalism and the heresies of T.D. Jakes never addressed his word of faith heresy. I mean, nothing from Driscoll on that at all. Well, I'm glad you make that point because... Uh,
1: It's 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 really amazed me. And in fact, I've been I've been absolutely silent about Driscoll for, I suppose, about two years now. I may have made one or two comments on Twitter, but I haven't said a lot about him because he seems to have this pathological uh, quest to get as much publicity as he as he can. And I didn't want to contribute to that. But it has been disturbing even to sit on the sidelines and watch while people get all upset over the plagiarism issue and all, and all that and it is a serious thing but it pales in comparison to the whitewashing of TD Jakes yep and and you know even the mistreatment of Song of Solomon these other things that happened earlier actually that were even worse and now now you know it's like pulling him over for for not having his license plate renewed or something, to, to <laughs>
0: Yeah, I know. You, know. you think about it. It was uh, Al Capone. I mean, ultimately, went to prison for tax evasion. <laughs> it's,
1: like, it's exactly you know. like that. It's, that's a excellent comparison. I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand why young evangelicals and even a lot of evangelical leaders are willing to tolerate something like the like the TD Jakes episode, the the Elephant Room two fiasco yep. which was huge i mean in the scope of important doctrines and and you know the the progression of the evangelical movement historically since the protestant reformation that, that's a serious serious transgression
0: right and even in his book a call to resurgence he he states that the doctrine of the trinity is a is one of those national border issues within, within the church and I, I couldn't believe what, as I, as I was reading this latest book of his that he makes this point that, it, that you know this is a national border issue, and yet he doesn't address the fact that he sm- – basically then by his own – using his own metaphor, uh, Mark Driscoll is, Ill- is basically guilty of bringing an illegal alien into Christianity. I mean yeah, that, well, that, that's what we're talking about. Yeah,
1: and, and you touched there on an issue that, that really I think more than anything else explains why – I'm not bending bending over backwards to welcome this latest letter as an expression of genuine repentance. Mark Driscoll has a pattern, a well established pattern of of shallow repentance. He, he is also a shapeshifter. He'll say one thing, like you know, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those national borders, but then he does something else. Four years ago, five years ago, he was reformed. He considered himself the the spokesperson for neo Calvinism. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I've heard him say or do anything that even seems like he's he's defending any kind of reformed distinctive. He, he's he's made overtures towards not only Jake's, but others who, you know, who, who are just rank heretics. He's a shape shifter. And and, you know, pardon me, but I want to wait and see how this supposed repentance actually plays out. I'm glad he's he's going off. Um, you know, social media and all for the remainder of the year. I think that's a good idea. I, I hope he'll lay low. I wish he would step out of ministry, uh, at least for a time, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and and um, and really try to get the issues, really seriously reboot his life. I don't think that's going to happen. I think what we're actually going to see, because he's hanging on to all of his authority and all of his influence and, and all the things that, you know, really seem to matter the most to him, I I don't see him making the sort of changes that are needed. I think he's going to change shapes again, yet again. And uh, I want to wait and see how that plays out before I say, yes, I I accept this as an expression of genuine repentance because it really doesn't look that way.
0: Right. Well, the other thing that's uh, missing in all of this is an omission regarding the plagiarism. I mean, we're up to seven books now that his publishers have had to go back and actually provide proper citation in. And um, and when, you know, that whole thing finally came to a head and he, they had admitted that there was something wrong, his his admission was that mistakes were made, you know, and that, you know, basically kind of pinning it on research assistants, which you can put it fill in the blank ghostwriter. And um and so mistakes were made, but he never went back and apologized to Janet Mefford. And, uh, you know, and of course, in that interview where Mefford confronted him regarding uh, the first allegation of plagiarism in his latest book. Um, you know, basically, he threw it right back in her face and basically said, well, you're having a grumpy day, aren't you? I mean, made it look like, you know, what she was pointing out was her fault. I don't, to, to date, I'm not aware of any apology given by Driscoll to Janet Mefford for the way he treated her during that, uh, that interview.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it, it is, that's the kind of thing you want to see. And, you know, I hope he will take this time while he's, you know, out of the public eye, maybe a little bit more, and ponder some of those things. And it would be nice if he, if he actually did uh, sort of complete the process of repentance. I'm not sure he's actually begun it, but uh, I'm not saying I don't want to see fruits of that. I'd love to see
0: that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so being off social media, you think, is a good idea for him. That's, that's a step in the right direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a small step in the right direction, but it is definitely a step in the right direction.
0: Right. Yeah, although, you know, my my first reaction when I saw that was like, you know, he's putting himself in social media timeout. I mean, is, are we dealing with a teenager here? I mean, what are we dealing with? Yeah. Uh, that, the answer to that is
1: yeah, I, that's always been the issue that what you've got here is a uh a, a you know, somebody who's chronically stuck in uh, in, in a adolescent mindset right just can't seem to get out of that now but but it's a bigger deal than that now because there's a there's a long laundry list of sins that have been covered and made excuses for and all of that and genuine repentance would would haul those things out put them on the table face them frankly genuinely repent of them acknowledge what they are yeah and and go from there
0: exactly exactly and it's not like Christ hasn't bled and died for these sins. I mean, there really is genuine forgiveness offered in Christ. But, you know, it I feel like he's still trying to deflect. He still doesn't want to actually say what the thing is that he's done, as if having to say it would somehow undo him. But it's because he's not saying what it is that he's done. He's not saying the same thing as Scripture Regarding these sins that he's committed, that he's actually in a sense really undoing himself and um and and do undoing himself in a way that is dangerous eternally,
1: yeah I agree it's frightening
0: yeah i mean are are we dealing with a man who's genuinely regenerate, or are we dealing with somebody who is who is a tear among the wheat? I mean, it's it. He's behaving like a tear. Not he's not he's not behaving like wheat. He's behaving like a, a goat, not behaving like a sheep. And there are countless
1: young men in evangelicalism who look to him as a kind of role model. That that scares me even more for the future. When I woke up this morning and and uh, looked at my Facebook feed and saw how many people are celebrating the fact that how how wonderful it is that Mark Driscoll has thoroughly repented and 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 again he, he's managed to make himself kind of a hero and his critics are are now the goats. Yeah,
0: know? yeah, we're all the, we're all the evil haters, you know. And and it's you know my wife and I were talking about this last night and she said, "You know Chris, it's got to be really difficult for you to kind of stand your ground when the whole stream is is basically flowing the opposite direction of the way you're facing." And, you know, my my point to her was, it's like, I know for a fact, because I know my Bible, that what I heard from Driscoll wasn't genuine biblical repentance. And so my mind and my, my focus has to be on what Scripture says, not what everyone else around me is doing. Yep. So... All right. Well, um, <laughs> I appreciate you taking a little bit of time to uh, discuss this with me on the air. I know you're uh, you're working on a on a on a pretty tight deadline. And... I
1: am. In fact, I need to get back to work here. But uh, it's always great to talk to you.
0: Yeah, good to talk to you. And uh, will I see you in Montana at uh, Reformation Montana in uh, June? That's right. I'm looking forward to that.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah I hope you'll. Uh... You'll do another live sermon review like you did last year. That uh,
0: what I, I'm going to do something that's kind of a hybrid. Um, you know, uh, Jordan's actually given me a little bit of leeway. He wants me to talk about uh, Beth Moore and Anne Voskamp, and and uh, I, I got to tell you, we've I've stolen a, a phrase from one of my listeners, a, a gal that listens to my program. She calls them the Misty Chicks, you know, as in mysticism. And so I'm going to be doing um, a little bit of you know sermon review plus teaching so there'll be i'll interact with some of the things of voss camp and more say sermon review style in in that way but i'll be providing a a, a critique and a warning regarding the uh, the the teaching of the misty chicks
1: That'll that's sure to be good uh that makes me really look forward to that week
0: <laughs> i'm looking forward to see you guys again in in uh, in person so all right all right lord's blessings thank you for your time you too thanks uh uh-huh. so what'd you think love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com subscribe on facebook facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian quick break when we come back we're going to be listening to a portion of a sermon that mark driscoll preached a few years back on the story of zacchaeus from the gospel of luke talking about repentance and restitution it should be rather interesting to compare what he preaches there to what he's been doing. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
2: No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine
3: now. <laughs>
1: Python's Flying Circus Church.
3: Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a -A Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good for nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm, I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god.
0: All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your favorite celebrity pastor, especially if he doesn't practice what he preaches regarding repentance and restitution. Yeah, more details coming. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring... Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us, that's right, it's a partnership, by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to... Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Okay, this next segment, we're just going to get right to it. This is from a sermon delivered a few years ago, June of 2011, by uh, Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill Church. And uh, the name of the sermon, in fact, let me pull this up on their website, is entitled Jesus and Zacchaeus, and it's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Now, we're not going to play the sermon in, in its entirety. This, the sermon in, in, in its entirety it's like... 57 minutes long, so it's kind of a long one. Uh, But what I did is I went in and I went ahead and, you know, kind of cut it up a little bit to keep focused on Zacchaeus, his forgiveness, his repentance, and his restitution, as well as eight questions that uh, Mark Driscoll asks at the end of the sermon, you know, to kind of button it up, if you would, kind of. uh, action points from the story of uh, Zacchaeus that he wanted the people at Mars Hill to hear and to apply to their lives. And um, the reason I point this out is because Mark Driscoll, clearly, when you listen to what he preaches, or has preached on repentance and restitution, hasn't practiced what he preaches. And um, it goes to the bigger issue of, has he really genuinely repented? Because... He has yet to publicly acknowledge, acknowledge the sins that he's actually committed, or even begun to apologize and make restitution for the damage that he's done, especially in things that um, I talked about yes, in yesterday's program, as well as the things I discussed with Phil Johnson in the uh, interview you just heard. So without any further ado, here is Mark Driscoll uh, preaching on Luke chapter 19 verses one through 10 in the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Here we go.
2: Well, there's a guy like that in the Bible. He was a crook and a thief of a different sort with his own kind of Ponzi scheme. And he ripped people off and he was very rich and very powerful. And his name is Zacchaeus. And today you're going to see him meet Jesus and how his life changes with his relationship beginning with Jesus Christ. And today we just want to thank Luke. Actually, the story of Zacchaeus is only found in the Gospel of Luke. So had Luke not faithfully recorded this by the power of the Holy Spirit for us, we wouldn't know the story of Zacchaeus. Some of you are familiar with his story. Others of you perhaps are not. We'll launch in Luke chapter 19. We learn about Jesus and Zacchaeus. The first thing we learn is that Zacchaeus was a wee rich man. He was a little guy. Luke nineteen one through 4. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho. That's a town he's passing through on his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to die on the cross in our place for our sins. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not see because he was a wee little man. So... He ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he, that being Jesus, was about to pass by. So here's the story, Zacchaeus, we learn of him as being both wealthy and powerful. He's not just a tax collector, he's the chief tax collector. So again, in this Ponzi scheme that the Roman government has set up, and the Roman government at this point had overtaken God's people and they were ruling over them, and so then they would take some of those who were Jewish, they would appoint them to be tax collectors. These were traitors. We would put them today in the same category as pimps and those who are in sex trafficking and drug dealers. This is the worst of the worst. These are people who betrayed their own, their own nation, they betrayed their own God. They they, they betrayed their own family to become tax collectors. And the way this Ponzi scheme worked. You would collect money for the godless Roman government. Anything you could extort beyond that was yours. So your job was extortion. And you would have to pay a percentage up the pyramid to the guy at the top, the head of the Ponzi scheme. Who is it? Zacchaeus. He's not just the tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. He's a very powerful man. He's bankrupted people. He's defaulted on loans. He has seized people's possessions. Today, he would be the kind of guy who's very rich. That's what the Bible says. He's very rich. He is loaded, multimillionaire, billionaire. This is a guy with private jets, vacation homes, a staff to serve him. Kind of like
0: celebrity pastors in the secret driven movement. <laughs> Just, <clears throat> sorry, I had to put that in there.
2: Only eats the finest of foods, only drinks the finest of wines, and he lives the life of a God. He is essentially worshiped by people. And nonetheless, he's seizing homes and assets and cars and bankrupting people and taking their retirement account and taking their children's college fund. And he is ripping people off. That's who he is. Now, let me say this. Sometimes actions are legal and sinful. What Zacchaeus is doing is not illegal, but it is sinful. It is acceptable in the eyes of the government, but it is unacceptable in the sight of God. And this is important because you and I need to know that we are to submit to the government, Romans 13. But beyond that, there are the laws of God. And the laws of God will say that things are sinful that are in fact legal. Adultery, it's not illegal. Sinful. Gossip is not illegal. It's sinful. Coveting is not illegal. It's sinful. Sinful.
0: Manipulating the New York Times bestseller list in order to make yourself a New York Times bestseller. Um, Not illegal. Sinful. Using tithe money to do it.
2: Probably illegal and sinful. And sometimes you and I, we get away with things in the eyes of the government that we don't get away with in the eyes of God. And so we need to take our morality beyond the law to the law of God. And here, what Zacchaeus is doing is not illegal, but it's sinful. And the key, friends, is to know this. In the sight of God, we're all guilty. And that God would call any of us and love any of us and forgive any of us, well, that's a miracle.
0: And I would say to that, amen. I mean, one of the things you have to credit this sermon is is that there's very clear gospel in here. He rightly preaches the forgiveness of sins in this sermon, and that's what makes it all that much more saddening that the very forgiveness he's offering the people at Mars Hill in the sermon, he's not now applying it to himself by repenting and making restitution himself. That's the tragedy of this, but we continue.
2: Some of you are keenly aware of the things you've done and failed to do and the way you've lived and how really in the sight of God, it is dishonoring. Even if it's not illegal, it's sinful. And some of you have that, which is also illegal. And from Zacchaeus, we get so much hope and encouragement. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus calls out to you and he will welcome you as a friend and he will forgive you of any and all sin. That's exactly what he does for Zacchaeus. That's what he does for me. That's what he does for all who are Christian. But here's the underlying problem with those who are grumbling. They are thinking that all that's going to happen now, Jesus is going to forgive him, and all of the evil atrocity and injustice that he's done will just be swept away, and there will not be any justice brought. So, here's the key. Here's what happens with Zacchaeus. It's a little equation. Repentance plus restitution equals rejoicing.
0: Repentance plus restitution equals rejoicing. Let me play that again from him, because what's missing from Driscoll is real repentance and any even remote effort at restitution for the things that he's done.
2: Here's what happens with Zacchaeus. It's a little equation. Repentance plus restitution equals rejoicing. Luke 19, 8 through 10. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, what does he call Jesus? Lord. So he's become a Christian now. Jesus is his Lord. The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, that is by faith, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now here's what happens. Zacchaeus is guilty. He's guilty. And Jesus forgives him. And those who are present grumble, that's not fair. Now the truth is this, Jesus not only forgives people, he changes them. Religious people don't get that. How could he just forgive them? Well, he's also going to change him. So he looks at Jesus, he says, Lord. This indicates that something is changed in his heart and in his allegiance. He now serves Jesus. He now belongs to Jesus. He now knows Jesus. He now loves Jesus above all. And so Jesus forgives him and that changes him. See, Christianity is not do whatever you want, God will forgive you, keep doing whatever you want, and God will keep forgiving you. Christianity is you do what you want, you meet Jesus, you realize it's sinful and wicked, you realize that he in fact is Lord. You don't want to continue sinning because something happens deep in you, you change. The Bible calls it being born again. You become a new person. You now have a new power through the Holy Spirit. You now have a new Lord in Jesus. You now have a new authority in scripture and you now have a new nature that has new desires. You don't want to keep living the way you used to. You want to change. You want to be different. You want to be like Jesus. Not so that he'll love you, but because he already has. Not so that he'll forgive you, but because he already does. Not so that God would be pleased with you, but because Jesus has already called you a friend. And so the result of this is not religion, it's rejoicing. And so he here repents. He publicly, in front of a crowd, he acknowledges, yes, I have sinned. I have sinned. And repentance, there's a constellation of words in the Bible, Old and New Testament that speak of repentance, but they all essentially communicate the same big idea. There is Jesus and sin, and you can only go one direction at one time. And so sin is when we turn our back on Jesus, we walk toward our sin. For him, it was money and power. Repentance is where we have a change of mind and a change of heart, and a change of desire by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. We become born again spiritually, and we literally repent. It's a turning. We turn our back on our sin, and we turn our face toward Jesus, and we begin walking with Him. In its simplest understanding, that's repentance. He here repents. And it culminates in restitution. He has sins of omission. He's not helped the poor. He has sins of commission. He has defrauded others. It's exactly what he says. And immediately, as a brand new person, he does something he's never done. He publicly confesses his sin. He publicly practices repentance. And he also guarantees restitution. Now, let me say what restitution is not. Restitution is not penance. Penance is the false teaching that you have done something and you need to pay God and others back so that you can be forgiven. And that's not true. It's not karma or reincarnation where you got to pay off the debt so that you can be forgiven. This has actually nothing to do with being forgiven in the sight of God. This is evidence that you've received God's forgiveness. Let me say it this way. God forgives you, but what if you've really harmed other people? Your new nature, your new heart as a new person should be to do all you can to right your wrongs, to help those you've harmed, to pay back those you've ripped off.
0: I agree. I agree. I mean, what he's saying here is the truth. So my question right here at this point in Driscoll's sermon is, are you going to apologize publicly? To everybody that you've thrown under the Mars Hill bus? Are you going to acknowledge that you said that by God's grace, there'll be a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus? Are you going to apologize and publicly make restitution for the sin that you committed in mainstreaming T.D. Jakes, a modalist and a prosperity heretic, um, and your participation at Elephant Room, uh, too? Are you going to make restitution for that? Will you publicly apologize to Janet Mefford, who called you on the carpet regarding your plagiarism and called her and you said that she had, was having a grumpy day when she did that? When in reality, now the book that you wrote properly cites the people that were not properly cited, um, and, uh, which initially launched the whole plagiarism thing. There were seven books that you wrote. That were not properly cited. There was plagiarism in seven of your books. Will you publicly acknowledge that plagiarism? Will you publicly acknowledge that it was wrong to use $210,000 in tithes and offerings from Mars Hill Church to make you a New York Times best-selling author? Will you make restitution for the $210,000 for, you know that was used to make you a New York Times bestselling author. I mean, this is what you preached back in June of 2011, just mere months before you signed the contract with Source to make you a New York Times bestselling author. Will you practice what you're preaching here, Mark?
2: Not so that you would be acceptable in the sight of God, but because Jesus has called you a friend, and you want to be a friend to others as he's been a friend to you. That's restitution. And very few evangelical Christians understand restitution. It's not works. Again, it's not karma. Again, it, it is not penance. It's justice. It's doing the right thing. It's doing the right thing. And so he says For my sins of omission, not helping the poor, I'm going to give half of all my assets. That's a lot. It's a 50% tithe. That's a lot, right? Even if he's a multimillionaire or billionaire, this is a lot. And he says, now regarding those I have defrauded, he's essentially saying, you're welcome to meet with me. Tell me how I've ripped you off or one of my employees has. And he has many. And I will pay you back how much? Fourfold. Is that restitution? Yeah. This is like a friend of yours borrows your Hyundai forever, right? I'm like, they never brought my Hyundai back. For some, maybe that's a blessing. But for most, it would be a curse. You say, I lent them my car and they stole it. Then you get a text. Hey, I met Jesus. I feel terrible about stealing your Hyundai. So I parked my BMW in your driveway and the keys are under the mat please forgive me. Yay, team Jesus. (laughs) Right? That's what's happening here. See, Zacchaeus comes down and he has a party at his house and Jesus and the disciples come over and they're rejoicing. And in making this statement publicly, would you anticipate that others would be rejoicing too? Sweetheart, you remember Zacchaeus? Yeah, the guy who ripped us off and he took all the money out of our kid's college account. He got saved. He said, he's going to give us four times more. Really? Well, that's, that's amazing. There was just a, a ripple effect of rejoicing in the community. What? And the poor were rejoicing. Zacchaeus is going to feed us all. He's so rich. We're going to get fat. Yay, team Jesus. Jesus. So it's not enough to receive the grace of God. We need to be agents of the grace of God. I want to close with a few questions for you. What does it look like for you? What is your repentance plus restitution that would result in rejoicing? We can't just look at the story of Zacchaeus and say, that's amazing. We have to look at Zacchaeus and say, that could be amazing for me as well. So I'm going to give you some questions to think about personally, to talk about with your family, to discuss in your community group. Number one, what have you taken that you need to give back? Have you stolen anything? You've got to say, Jesus forgives me. You've got to say, Jesus forgives me, and I need to give it back. Some of you
0: like the tithes and offerings that were used to make you a New York Times bestselling author.
2: Some of you, the people you stole from, they don't even know. Some of you would say, it's not illegal. It was called bankruptcy.
0: It's not illegal. It's just called an inurement. Well, maybe that is illegal.
2: You see what I'm saying here? But if you intentionally were fraudulent in your dealings with people, if you're intentionally trying to find a legal way to take money out of someone's pocket, it may be legal, but it might still be sinful. What have you taken that you need to repay? See, if this sermon does its job, hundreds of thousands of dollars are gonna come out of Mars Hill Church. So we say, I can't afford it. You may need to sell your car. You may need to downsize your lifestyle. You need to make some serious changes as an act of repentance and restitution. And the Holy Spirit for each of you is gonna highlight one of these questions or more something that is an action item for you. Yes, Jesus forgives but what about that which you've stolen? Wouldn't it be good to pay it back? And let me ask this. If you were in the position of the victim, isn't that what you would want? If someone called you and said, I became a Christian, he forgave all my sin. Thanks for letting me rip you off. You would say, you know, as the victim, that doesn't sit quite right. Now, as the victim, you could say, I forgive you as well. The debt is forgiven. I do not want repayment. You have that right. Or you could say, yes, I appreciate that offer and I will receive it. See, we want to treat others as we would want to be treated, Jesus says. Number two, how have you defrauded and what should you pay? I'll give you an example. Are you the person at work who shows up late, leaves early, in the middle, spends a lot of time on Facebook and Twitter, Watches a lot of YouTube videos, returns a lot of personal emails, takes a lot of personal phone calls. That's defrauding your employer. You say, everybody does it. It's not illegal, but it's sinful. Have you billed clients for hours you didn't work? Have you padded all of your billing? You're just like Zacchaeus. You're just like Zacchaeus. Who have you defrauded? Who have you defrauded? Are you that person who had that car? It was a total piece of garbage. You totally knew it. Somebody came to buy it. And they saw the fish on the back. And they asked you, how does it run? You're like, great. All right, brother. Oh, you know, hey, lemon laws, it's not illegal. But were you defrauding? Were you dishonest? You say, if I tell them it's a lemon, they're not going to buy it. I know. Maybe you shouldn't sell it. But I won't get my money back. True. But you also wouldn't be defrauding someone. It would be really cool, I think, if we just put, some of us on our vehicles, this car is a lemon, and so I'm going to sell it cheap to the glory of God. At least you know what you're getting. How many of you have been defrauded? Somebody sold you something, they didn't tell the truth. Somebody billed you for something, that wasn't honest. They charged you for something and they patted it. We want to treat others the way we want to be treated. Number three, when have you been lazy and what does it look like to change? Have you really not done what you're supposed to do for your family? Have you not done what you're supposed to do for your employer? Have you not done what you're supposed to do in your schoolwork? Whatever your job, quote-unquote, is, just lazy, not doing your best, defrauding others of good service. What does it look like for you to change?
0: Like not citing authors in your books and engaging in plagiarism? Is that what we're talking about here?
2: That's why some of you, you don't work hard. You don't work a lot. You can't keep a job. Some of you, you you don't work toward progress. You just sort of settle in. You've learned at your job. If I just don't get in trouble, don't do anything crazy, hide over here in the corner, I can sort of just milk this job. Number four, whom have you neglected and what does your restitution require? See, we steal from people. We steal memories. We steal friendship. We steal joy. Gracie and I just finished the marriage book, sent off the final edits. It'll be out at the end of this year. And we tell a story in there from a counseling appointment a long while ago. And the story was a husband and a wife who had been married for a long time. And there hadn't been adultery or divorce, but there hadn't been friendship. Ask her, what do you want? She said, I want him to sit on the couch and talk to me 20, 30 minutes a day. Is that unreasonable? How long have you been waiting 40 years been waiting on the couch after dinner every day for 40 years. Yes. And he never sits down and visits with me. And he might say, that's not illegal, but it's sinful. And you've stolen thousands of hours from your wife. Some of you, you don't have date night. You don't court your spouse. You don't spend time with your kids. You don't go to their events. You don't do a lot of things that no one would arrest you for. But you've stolen memories, you've stolen hope, you've stolen encouragement, you've stolen joy. Some of you have intentionally sabotaged birthdays and holidays, made vacations miserable. You've stolen. You've stolen joy and friendship and community and life. And what does restitution require? What does it look like to say you're sorry and try to, in as much as you're able, do it right and make up for it? Number five. Which sinner have you not called out, but only grumbled about? Zacchaeus is a sinner. Everybody knows it. They're all talking about him. And Jesus calls out to him and they grumble. Who do you gossip about? Who do you talk about? They drive me crazy. They're driving me nuts. They're so horrible. Have you talked to them? No. Well, maybe you should call them out like Jesus called Zacchaeus out. Look, I love you. I'm frustrated with you. Here's the truth. We need to deal with this. I'm calling you out. I'm calling you into friendship, but a friendship in which you're going to make some changes thanks to Jesus. Who do you need to talk to? It may be fear of man or laziness on your behalf. But how have you acted like the crowd instead of like Jesus? Everybody knew Zacchaeus had a problem. Only one person talked to him. Number six, what joys have you stolen and need to repay? Sort of back to my earlier point. I know parents who have missed their kids' birthdays. I know parents who have missed important seasons and moments and opportunities in their kids' life, not because they had to, just because they chose to. Anniversaries, birthdays. Oh, I'm not organized. I'm not sentimental. I'm not romantic. I'm not considerate. What you should say is, I'm unrepentant. Number seven. What sins have you tolerated, and what does repentance look like? Zacchaeus had tolerated this sin in his life for a long time. It takes more than a few years to become the chief tax collector and very rich.
0: How about tolerating the false doctrine of T.D. Jakes and trying to pass it off as
2: Christian? What have you accommodated, accepted, tolerated for a long time, and today's the day you say, yeah, that needs to die, my back needs to turn on it, my face needs to turn toward him. And number eight. Have you been greedy? And if so, what does it look like to be generous? Have you been greedy? Have you been greedy? When you get, do you increase your standard of giving or just your standard of living? Have you played that myth that as soon as I get out of this hole, then I'm going to be generous? And you get out of that hole to get into another hole? Because you've not had repentance. You've not practiced restitution. Have you been greedy? Generosity, friends, should start with our family should extend from there to the work of God and to the poor. And some of you say, I knew this is where it was going. He wants my money. I don't want your money. I want you to have joy. Zacchaeus was a miserable man. And then he met Jesus and he changed. And he rejoiced and his generosity enabled others to rejoice. And the Bible says that we are more blessed. This is from the lips of Jesus. It is more blessed to what than what? To give than receive. See, Jesus is the biggest giver. Jesus is the most joyful. And Jesus wants us to receive from him the gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, and to participate with him in his work on the earth of being generous that we might share in his joy. That's why the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. If you're here today and you say, you know what? I am unwilling to have any alteration in my standard of living, my financial security. Tragically, what you're saying is, I choose my idol and I reject Jesus. We don't want that for any of you.
0: Are you doing that right now, Mark? Is your idol your work? Is your idol your pastoral office, your job? Because you haven't changed anything. You haven't really acknowledged what you've done. You've admitted to the lesser crimes, but have completely omitted and not even
2: discussed the greater ones. Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to your house. Let me invite you. Today salvation could come to your house. Receive Jesus as Savior and friend. And Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Some of us are lost Some of you are lost. At one point, I was lost, and Jesus comes today to seek and save you. Jesus comes to call out to you. And in the story, he's on his way to the cross where he's going to pay your debt and give you the gift of God as a friend. That's our Jesus.
0: Yes, it is. And imagine the joy and rejoicing there would be in the body of Christ if Mark Driscoll would really, truly repent and show his repentance and that he's forgiven through his restitution and owning up to the sins that he's committed that he still has not confessed or repented of. That would bring joy to all of us, and I think that's the kind of joy that Christ really wants us to see happening in this situation. Pray that Mark Driscoll repents. That's really... What these programs yesterday and today are hoping and praying and shooting for. What do you think? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. A sermon, a good one by Phil Johnson. Entitled, How to Identify Genuine Repentance, he's preaching through Psalm chapter 51. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it, we'll be right back.
2: We don't need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of fighting for the faith. We're a little bit into it already. Rare occasion here, a midweek good sermon. But this is an important topic given the current circumstances. And we will be in capable and able hands with Phil Johnson. Here we go. The ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Grace Life Church, Valencia, California. Phil Johnson presiding. The name of the sermon we will be listening to is entitled, How to Identify Genuine Repentance. It was preached on April 3rd of 2011, same year that we heard uh, you know, the sermon from Mark Driscoll. That was preached in the same year text is Psalm chapter 51 which I read through yesterday uh, in talking about biblical repentance looking at really King David. So let me go ahead and we'll go ahead and kill the music here and without any further ado here is Phil Johnson and his sermon entitled How to Identify Genuine Repentance.
1: Last week we looked at King Saul and how he was deposed because he sinned And we sort of mentioned more or less in passing, but I made a a point of it that although Saul expressed remorse, it was merely remorse over the consequences of his sin. It wasn't genuine repentance for his sin, and he lost the throne for himself and his posterity forever. And then David is appointed king, in the next generation, he sins in a way that actually is in some ways more shocking to us... He commits adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband murdered, and yet he stays on the throne. And Psalm 51 is the record of David's response when he was confronted with that sin. And so I want to return to that psalm again this morning, this psalm of repentance. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And for those of you who've already heard me teach on this passage, I I beg your indulgence, and I hope you will find a review of this passage as helpful as I do. But this will be new material, I think, to most of you, because by my records, it's been seven years since we last dealt with this psalm. And so it was read earlier this morning. I won't read the whole psalm, but by way of introduction, let me just reread for you the superscription. Verse 1, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. There are two things I want you to notice here. First, the psalm's title says, to the chief musician. Some of your translations may say to the choir director. Either way, what it means is that this psalm was written and submitted to the chief musician at the temple for public worship. This was not a psalm for private meditation. It's a public statement. In fact, if you... uh, read the superscriptions, you'll discover that many of the psalms have titles. Some of them are Hebrew titles. For example, if you looked up Psalms 4 and 6 and 54 and 55, Psalm 67, Psalm 76, you'd see that the title of each of those psalms, they all fit in a category called Neganoth. Neganoth. That's a fairly, evidently, a fairly easy word for Hebrew scholars, it means that those psalms were composed for an accompaniment with stringed instruments. So when you see Neganoth, that's what it means, sing this with a stringed instrument. Psalms 16 and Psalms 56 through 60 are labeled Miktam. And frankly, even the Hebrew scholars don't have a clue what that means. Luther translated Miktam, a golden psalm. And some commentators believe it referred to Psalms that required a high level of skill to perform correctly, because they're difficult psalms. Thirteen of the psalms are labeled masculine. These are the contemplative psalms. These are designed for reading and reflection, you know, in in your personal devotions, perhaps. Most of the psalms that are titled masculine are are rich in doctrinal content. They are a little more didactic uh, than some of the psalms where David is simply pouring out his heart and his emotions. And I want you to notice something. Psalm 32, flip back there real quickly, it's masculine. It's labeled masculine. It's a penitential psalm, just like Psalm 51. In other words, it's a a psalm about repentance. In fact, many commentators believe Psalm 32 grew out of the same episode in David's life as Psalm 51, So, Psalms 51 and 32, by the way, the Psalms are not in any kind of chronological order or anything like that. So, it's not extraordinary to have Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 be actually about the same episode of repentance, and they seem to be. These are companion Psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, two different Psalms, both about repentance, both of them probably... Personal expressions of David's own repentance after the most notorious sin in his life. And Psalm 32, if you compared it with Psalm 51, you discover Psalm 32 is more reflective. It's less of an emotional outpouring than Psalm 51. And in fact, like all of the Psalms you'll find labeled masculine, Psalm 32 is a doctrinal psalm, it's just rich with doctrinal content the Apostle Paul cites Psalm 32 in his discourse on the the doctrine of justification by faith in Romans 4. And Paul quotes that psalm, Psalm 32, to prove that David believed in the doctrine of imputed righteousness, justification by faith. But this psalm, our psalm for this morning, Psalm 51, is It's different in in character, completely different, even though it deals with the same episode of repentance. It's of a whole different flavor. It's more emotional. It's less didactic. It it was probably written before Psalm 32. As I said, they're not in chronological order. Psalm 51 has all the earmarks of being written while David was still in the throes of agony as he was coming to grips with with the horror of his own sin and the shocking wickedness of what he had done. And he's emotionally overwrought, and it comes through in the psalm. That's why I find it remarkable that this psalm is labeled to the chief musician. This psalm is without a doubt the most deeply personal of all the psalms. Out of all the psalms David ever wrote... This is the last one you might expect him to give to the choir master for public singing. It describes David's private shame. It documents the disgrace of a horrible sin that David himself had been desperately trying to cover up for many months. And remember, David was king of the whole nation. He might have been inclined to guard his dignity by trying to keep his sin as quiet as possible, and yet he wrote this psalm to uncover his wretched disgrace for everyone to see, and he gave it to the choir director for use in the public worship of Israel, and he gave it to them for permanent inclusion in the Psalter. So we have it today. Now, you and I aren't kings, but we're pretty protective of our dignity, aren't we? We don't like to have the shame of our sin uncovered. None of us likes that. But can you imagine writing a song that would call to mind the most wretched moment of your life, expressing the depth of emotion in your repentance, and then giving that to Clayton Erb for the choir to sing in front of the whole congregation? That's pretty much what David did here. Now, Scripture says, He who covers his sins shall not prosper, Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. David had spent months trying desperately to cover his sin at all costs, but now he just brings it out in the open for everyone to see. It gives you an idea what a remarkable change of heart had already taken place inside David, and that is the main theme of this psalm. It's about David's change of heart, and it's a prayer that God would continue to change and purify his heart. Now, look at the title again, and I want to make another point with this. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came into him after he had gone into Bathsheba. I'm, I'm pretty sure most of you are basically familiar with this episode in David's life. If you haven't, you know, read the biblical account, maybe you've seen the movie. And there's no, there's no reason for us to go into detail, uh, in depth deep, deep detail today. But here's a summary. David committed adultery with Bathsheba while her husband, she was a married woman, her husband Uriah was one of his the captains in his army Uriah was faithfully serving David and away at battle while David stayed home and he ends up seducing Bathsheba this this soldier of his his wife According to 2 Samuel 2339, Uriah was one of David's elite soldiers. He was a member of a band of 37 mighty men who were personally devoted to David and had been, these men had been his closest friends and companions during those dark days when David lived in exile. You remember when Saul was chasing him everywhere. But David's lust got the better of him and he sinned with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And when Bathsheba became pregnant, David tried several desperate schemes to sort of cover it up. And then finally, when none of his schemes worked, he brought Uriah home from the field, hoping that he would think the child was his. But Uriah, as faithful as he was to David, refused to, to uh, sleep with his wife while the rest of the army was out on the battlefront. And so that scheme didn't work. And so finally, he had, David had Uriah killed, and he took Bathsheba to be his own wife. That's a, that's a desperately wicked sin, isn't it? Second Samuel 11 describes the whole saga, and at the end, just to sum it up, you read these words, which I find frightening. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. 27, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. In fact, some of you are turning there. Go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 12, and I want you to see exactly what happened after that. Second Samuel 12, verse 1, and I'll read through verse 4. It says this, "'And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, "'and he came to him and said unto him, "'There were two men in the city, one rich, the other poor. "'The rich man had many flocks and herds, "'but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb, "'which he had bought and nourished up, "'and it grew up together with him and with his children. "'It did eat of his own food, it drank of his own cup.'" It lay in his bosom and was as unto him as a daughter. And there, were, there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. Now, I'll pause there and, and point out, David doesn't realize it, but Nathan, Nathan, by the way, is one of David's advisors, one of his key advisors. Nathan is telling him a parable. And the moral lesson of this tale involves the very wrong David had committed, but such is the blindness of hypocrisy that subtle moral lessons are often lost on a hypocrite, and that's what happened to David. He's listening to this. He doesn't see himself in the moral of this tale. He thinks Nathan's telling him about a real incident that truly happened, and his reaction to Nathan's tale about this poor man's pet lamb was immediate outrage. He he got angry, and rightfully so. Verses 5 and 6 say this, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, picture this scene in your mind. As far as David knows, Nathan is telling him a a story about a real man and his pet lamb, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He's immediately furious. And he passes the death sentence on this guy who he thought was somebody else. And yet, now think about this. The sin Nathan describes in the parable is mild by comparison to David's actual sin. In the parable, it was only a lamb that was stolen. It was only an animal that was killed. In real life, David had stolen another man's wife, a man who had been a faithful friend to David for many years and who was away only because he was still serving David. And David had that man killed in order to take his wife. Not just a lamb but an innocent man who had never been anything but a faithful friend to David. And the truth is, David's own sin was worse by magnitudes than this fictitious act of injustice that had him breathing out condemnation and threats of death. You see yourself in David's reaction? I do, honestly. I'll be honest with you. It's so easy to hate other people's sins... And we subtly deceive ourselves when we try to justify our own sin. And did you ever notice it's it's easiest and we, we have the most hatred for other people's sins when those are the same sins we commit? I hate to see other people, especially my own kids, commit the sins I'm guilty of. That's how we do. It apparently did not even occur to David that he was guilty of a sin that was far worse than this parable that had evoked such outrage from him. So, try to imagine what David must have felt like when Nathan jolted him to reality and pointed his prophetic finger at David's forehead and spoke the prophetic words of verse 7. Thou art the man. That's the King James, I love that. Thou art the man. David had passed this harsh sentence against an imaginary man who stole his neighbor's lamb. He sentenced him to death, and now he discovers he's the man he just judged. God's judgment against David would also be severe. Nathan tells him, verse 7, "'Thou art the man, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, "'I anointed thee king over Israel, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul.'" I gave you your master's house, I gave your master's wives into your bosom, I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given you such and such things. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house." Because you have despised me, this is God speaking, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes. I will give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the sun." Scripture tells us, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son whom he receives, Hebrews 12, 6. And in fact, this was part of God's covenant with David. In fact, just, just a few pages back in your Bible, look at 2 Samuel seven fourteen. God gave this promise to David concerning his offspring, who would occupy the throne. This is a promise specifically about Solomon. It speaks of Solomon. And God says, I'll be his father. He shall be my son if he commits iniquity, which, by the way, Solomon did. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. The same principle applied to David himself, of course. He couldn't sin and escape the chastening hand of God. And because his sin was severe the chastening would be severe as well. But notice, even though David's discipline was severe, it was merciful. David didn't die. Even though David himself had already declared the death penalty for a sin less than what he actually did, he didn't die. He wasn't even deposed from his throne. This is a great question people often ask. Why was David allowed to remain king of Israel even after committing such a heinous sin as this? The fact is, that would have been a just punishment too if the kingdom of Israel were held to the same leadership standard that applies to elders of the church. David would utterly have been disqualified from leadership, and he would have been deposed from the throne. But here's why God showed him mercy. God had made an inviolable covenant with David and with his house forever. David represented the bloodline of the Messiah. And so at the heart of God's covenant with David was this vast promise of divine mercy for David and for all of his offspring who would sit on the throne of Judah. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant required the continuation of the Davidic line on the throne. And still reading from Second Samuel 7, look at verses 15 and 16. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before him. And, and thy house, thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. That's an unconditional promise. That's God's covenant with David. And our God is a covenant-keeping God. And so mercy was extended to David as soon as he confessed his sin. Look again at 2nd Samuel 12:13. 2nd Samuel 12:13 As soon as David heard those words, thou art the man. His conscience, which David himself had deliberately hardened for so long, David's conscience suddenly awoke with a fury and the result is an outpouring of the deepest kind of repentance from David's heart. And by the way, just from a theological perspective, you understand that repentance itself is a gift from God. This was God graciously granting David repentance. And he pours out his heart. David, to his credit, immediately confessed that he had sinned. He didn't attempt any explanation. He didn't try to soften or rationalize away the seriousness of what he had done. He didn't engage in blame-shifting or self-defense he yields immediately. He ended, right at this point, those months of attempts to cover up his sin. He fully owned his guilt, and he did it immediately. And the Lord's tender mercy was already there to meet him. The moment he said three words, I have sinned, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. In other words, the Lord formally commutes the sentence that David had pronounced against himself. And I want you to notice that although God showed him mercy, forgave his sin, put it away from him, commuted the sentence of death that David had had uttered against himself, notice that the discipline administered by the hand of God against David was still dreadfully severe. God is not to be trifled with. He's to be feared, and David was by no means just totally let off lightly. In fact, David bore the consequences of this sin for the rest of his earthly life. From this point on, the story of David becomes a chronicle of frustration and tragedy as the evil consequences of his sin sort of have a rippling effect that reaches to the very end of his earthly days. Now, on the other hand, it's hard to imagine any more monstrous sin than the sin David committed. It's difficult to conceive a more wicked crime than this kind of conspiratorial murder that David had committed against Uriah. This was a capital offense. And if God had exacted the death penalty, it would have been perfectly just. What David did deserved death. And David was literally the first one to admit that. But Nathan tells David, verse 13, "'The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die, how be it. Because by this deed you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth.'" Now, that's the setting for our psalm. That gives you the context, and I hope you can sense something of what must have been in the mind and the heart of David at this point. I hope you can see this situation from David's perspective. Maybe sometime in your life you've known what it is to have a secret sin suddenly exposed, something you thought no one would ever know is suddenly brought out in the open. And if you've ever been through that, you must know something of the shame David felt. Multiply that shame times the magnitude of this enormous sin and remember that everyone in the entire nation knew who David was and knew that he had sinned. You and I probably can't even begin to fathom what it would feel like to be publicly ashamed on such a scale. It's a frightful thing even to try to imagine. Not only that... Imagine the sense of dread David must have struggled with. Have you ever been in a situation where you're about to reap the consequences of some sin? You've done something terribly wrong, perhaps in secret, and the thing has been found out, and now you know there will be inescapable consequences. My life as a child was filled with experiences like this, you know? I'd get caught, my mom would catch me, and she'd say, wait till your dad gets home. Just that anticipation that when my dad gets home, I'm really going to get it. This is like that, only on a cosmic scale, you know? This is one of the most horrible feelings you can imagine. It's a horrific mixture of grief and fear and horror at what you've done. And frankly, it feels like hell on earth. You ever had that feeling? Add that to... David's sense of shame, and you have a taste of what his state of mind must have been when he wrote this psalm. It's a, it's a state of mind, frankly, that's worse than any kind of grief you can fathom, worse than having lost a loved one, worse than having suffered a, a, a severe injury of any kind. It's just the worst feeling in the world, literally. Now, look at the psalm itself. This is a psalm of repentance. I think it's the greatest chapter of repentance in all of Scripture. And I I find that significant because how many times have you heard people point to David's sin with the express purpose of minimizing their own sin, you know? Well, sure, I've sinned, but look at what David did. I haven't done anything nearly as dark as that. And I hope you don't think your guilt is diminished by the greater sins of someone else. But here's what's important the focus throughout Scripture is never on David's sin, but on his repentance. And in fact, I'm convinced the reason Scripture records the Bathsheba episode in such vivid, colorful detail is not to highlight David's sin, but to give us a flesh and blood lesson on repentance. And this psalm is the focal point of the whole thing. This psalm is a great lesson in what true repentance looks like. You know that remorse is not the same as repentance, right? We talked about this briefly last week. And there are all kinds of examples of people in Scripture who were remorseful but not repentant. Esau had great remorse when he sold his birthright. He was desperate to try to get it back, even sought to get it back with tears. Judas was smitten with such remorse for his sin to the point that he went out and killed himself. But neither of those is an example of authentic repentance. So what they do teach us, though, is you can be sorry, you can cry, you can even have so much regret that you go out and kill yourself, and still all of that is short of what Scripture describes as genuine repentance. So what is true repentance? What distinguishes repentance from merely remorse? And Psalm 51 gives us several clues, and that's what I want to focus on as we sort of breeze through this psalm this morning. We're going to do this fairly rapidly, and we won't have time to look at every verse. But I want to call your attention to four aspects of David's prayer that mark this prayer as a prayer of authentic repentance— When you see these four characteristics, you know you are seeing genuine repentance. And so take these down. There's four of them. Number one, notice he is occupied with sin's guilt, not its consequences. He's occupied with sin's guilt, not its consequences. And if you want to shorthand that, just put guilt, not consequences. Remember that this psalm is... Pouring forth from the heart of a man who has just learned that he will live the rest of his life under God's discipline. He now knows that his own children will dishonor him because the Lord has told him through Nathan the prophet that evil will arise in his own household. That can only mean one thing his kids are going to rebel and shame him. His wives will be taken from him and made to commit adultery in broad daylight. That's part of the judgment. And by the way, those prophecies really came to pass, literally. You'll recall that Absalom, David's favorite son, attempted to usurp David's throne. You read in Second Samuel 16 that one of mo- David's most trusted advisors, Ahithophel, counseled Absalom to set up a tent on the roof of the palace where Absalom would go in in broad daylight with his father's concubines. And he did that in order to proclaim in the sight of all Israel that he now held power over his father and he was laying claim to everything that belonged to David. That's how David's favorite son dishonored him publicly, just as God had said. And the rebellion led by Absalom is one of the most dismal chapters in Israel's history. It's certainly the most painful period in David's life. And David had been through some trials, but the thing with Absalom was the worst ever. And think about this. David knew that was coming when he prayed the prayer of Psalm 51. He also knew when he prayed this prayer that the child he had conceived in his adultery with Bathsheba would die. This was a profoundly traumatic event for David. 2 Samuel 12, 16 I read it earlier. It says, David besought God for the child. He fasted. He went in. He lay all night on the the earth, meaning he lay on his face on the ground, pleading with God to preserve the life of that baby. He was distraught. It was unbearable grief for him because he knew it was the consequence of his own sin. And you may remember that when that child finally died, David's advisors were afraid to tell him because his grief was so deep and so obvious, they thought any more, one more bit of bad news is surely going to kill him. And so we know that the terrible consequences of this sin were a heavy load in David's heart and mind, and he bore that load for the rest of his life. And yet, in this prayer, in this psalm of repentance, David doesn't even mention his sin's consequences. He utters no prayer for the life of the child. He makes no complaint against the severity of God's discipline. His outrage in this psalm is reserved only for his own sin. He makes no complaint against the discipline God was meeting out to him. It was the sin that most disturbed David, not the punishment. He was wholly concerned with his guilt, not the consequences of his sin. Look at verse 3. I acknowledge my transgressions. Are you, are you back in Psalm 51? That's where you should be. Verse 3, I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And verse 4, against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and might be clear when thou judgest. In other words, David is saying, Lord, whatever discipline you see fit to bring against me, it is just. Let no one question the righteousness of God for his treatment of David. That's David's own testimony, Lord, that you might be justified when you judge. In modern language, David simply admits that he deserves whatever is coming to him because he is guilty as charged. It's refreshing, isn't it? Feigned repentance is nothing like this. In fact, this is very rare. You deal with people in the counseling room about their sin. I've only seen this maybe once or twice in my entire ministry. But the natural inclination we all have is when someone is is pointing out our sin, our minds just sort of naturally gravitate to wanting to lay the blame at the feet of those who've tried to call us to account. You know, I don't like the process they followed, or they weren't very gracious with me in doing that, or whatever. Blame the person who brings your sin to the forefront rather than acknowledging your sin yourself. That's what we all try to do. And when you see that, you know that what you're seeing is not authentic repentance. I mentioned a few years ago, I listened to the one of the most disgusting things I've ever heard is the taped testimony of a fairly well-known radio preacher in Dallas who was arrested for soliciting prostitutes. And he apologized to his family and his flock for any hurt he might have caused. He cried and wept and said what a bad choice he'd made. And this was a mistake. He wept aloud. He begged forgiveness. But then he spent nearly an hour reprimanding the people who had urged him to step down from public ministry. He called them self-righteous Pharisees, and he ranted and raved against people who wanted to call him account for his sin. That is not repentance, True repentance accepts the consequences of sin and mourns the guilt, not the other way around. I once, years ago, counseled a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery by her husband. She had been unfaithful to him numerous times over several years of their marriage. And this time he told her he was going to divorce her. She came to me for counsel, saying she wanted to save her marriage. I have never dealt with anyone who was more emotional than that woman. She would sob and wail, and sometimes all she could do was moan, just sit there, and she had very little to say. But you know what? All the raw emotion in the world doesn't signify real repentance. That woman's great sorrow, her almost unbearable grief, all of it was entirely focused on the consequences of her sin. She lacked any sense of real guilt. In fact, she constantly sought to explain her sin away by blaming other people, blaming things that happened in her childhood, blaming how her parents had raised her, and and on and on. And it was not real repentance, and that was ultimately made clear by subsequent sins that she committed. But the thing I remember about that was just the, the sobbing and the moaning. And at the time, I thought, I don't think I've ever seen anyone so distraught. And and in my immature mind, I thought, that's got to be genuine repentance. It wasn't. Too many people equate emotion with repentance. They think tears and sorrow and regret equal repentance. And those things are not repentance. Even Judas had tears and sorrow and regret. But at the heart of true repentance... It's a very simple principle. It's a conviction of our own guilt. And therefore, the person who is truly repentant is never indignant about the consequences of his sin. And that's a hard state of mind to be in, isn't it? Repentance is, I've said this before, the most unnatural thing for sinful hearts. That's why we know it's a gift of God. It also means that true repentance is occupied with sin's guilt, not its consequences. And it's clear from this psalm that David had the right perspective on this. He speaks of the guilt of his sin, not the consequences. Later, he would lie on his face and beg God for that infant's life. Later, he would mourn his son Absalom and plead for his soul. But here, in the midst of his repentance... David was concerned with the guilt of his sin, not the consequences. That's principle number one. Number two, second. his focus is upward, not inward. His focus is upward, not inward. One feature of this prayer that will be remarkable to anyone who's ever done any kind of counseling is the Godward focus of it. When people become tangled in sin's web, it is usually very difficult to teach them to focus on God rather than themselves. In fact, most of the work in counseling consists of trying to refocus someone who is fixed outward on others or worse, inward on himself. The struggle with sin inevitably has that effect. It skews our focus. Like... You know, like Adam and Eve who, who tried to hide themselves from God in the garden. We fear the thought of God. And so we turn our attention elsewhere, usually inward. And modern psychology only exacerbates the problem, telling people they need to boost their own self-esteem. They should not give in to guilt feelings. and they, You need to learn to forgive yourself. You've heard that expression, I'm sure, a lot. You need to learn to forgive yourself. What does that even mean? One thing is certain, there is absolutely nothing anywhere in Scripture that encourages us to think in those terms. On the contrary, you'll search this psalm in vain for any suggestion that sinners should be concerned with self-esteem. David's focus is entirely Godward, not on himself. And notice that he appeals to the mercy of God before he even mentions his sin. Verse 1, "'Have mercy on me, O God.'" According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. The mention of his sins, the end of the sentence, everything else is a plea in worshipful language addressed to God. That's where his focus was. Notice how David extols the Lord's mercy in degrees, from the idea of mercy to loving kindness to tender mercies. And suddenly David whose heart had grown cold for many months, is hungry for the mercy of God. That is a sure sign of genuine repentance. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's dealing with this same passage, and he says this, A new desire for God is so obvious here in the case of David. What a remarkable thing this is, Lloyd-Jones says. I do not hesitate to assert that this is perhaps the most subtle and delicate test as to whether we have genuinely repented our attitude towards God. Have you noticed it in this psalm? He says, the one against whom David has sinned is God, and yet the one he desires above all is God. That's the difference between remorse and repentance, Lloyd-Jones says. The man who has not repented but who is only experiencing remorse, when he realizes he'd done something against God, he avoids God. Lloyd-Jones says, the man who has not been dealt with by the Spirit of God and has not been convinced and convicted of his sin tries to get away from God, to avoid Him at all costs. He doesn't think. He doesn't read the Bible. He doesn't pray. He does everything he can not to think about these things. But the extraordinary thing about the man who is convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit is that although he knows he has sinned against God, it's God whom he wants. He wants. Be merciful to me, O God. He wants to be with God. Lloyd-Jones calls that the peculiar paradox of repentance, wanting the one whom I've offended. This is truly remarkable when you think of it. David fully acknowledges the greatness of his offense against God. Verse 4, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, and yet it is God whom he desires above all else. And that's where his attention is focused. Number three, we're taking these down. Notice, third, he seeks pardon, not pity. He seeks pardon, not pity. There's no hint of self-pity in David's prayer. He freely acknowledges that he has sinned, verse 3, and far from seeking pity, He goes out of his way in verse 4 to exonerate God from any charge that David has been treated too harshly. And then in verse 5, he says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, I want want you to look at that verse, verse 5. This is one of the classic proof texts on the doctrines of human depravity and original sin. David is pointing out that he inherited a sinful nature from his parents. So when he says, in sin did my mother conceive me, he's not saying that his mother was guilty of fornication. And he's not suggesting that there's anything less than honorable about the union of a man and a wife. Hebrews 13.4 makes this emphatic, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. So when David says his mother conceived him in sin... He's he's not saying that the act of conception involved the sin on her part. He's speaking of the sin nature that he inherited from his parents, just as we all inherit a sin nature from our parents, who got it from their parents, who got it from their parents, and so on, all the way back to Adam. Paul discusses this in Romans 5. Romans 5.12, listen to this. By one man, sin entered into all the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. And Romans 5.19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Adam's fall had the effect of making all of us sinful. That's known as the doctrine of original sin. And there, we've talked about that before. You can get the, you get the recordings of the messages on that. But that's the doctrine of original sin. It means we're all tainted because of Adam's sin. We inherit a sinful nature because the entire race is fallen. We're sinners before we ever sin. We're born with a bent towards sinning. Sinning is in our very nature, and we are sinners before we ever commit a single deliberate act of sin. That's what David is saying here. We sin because we're sinners, we don't become sinners when we sin. And so he's saying, basically, I was sinful from the moment of conception. Now, let's face this squarely. This is a difficult doctrine. If you don't think it's difficult, you probably need to think about it a little more deeply. Because there's something in every one of us that wants to protest this is not fair. If we're born into sin, if, if sin is inbred in us, and if our hearts are inclined to sin from the beginning, then we think, well, then the choice wasn't mine, it was Adam's. That's not fair. I'm not really to blame, and we try to use our depravity as an excuse to avoid the responsibility for our sin. But here David is not using his depravity as an excuse. Instead, he is thinking deeply about his guilt, and he sees that it's not just his actions that were sinful, but the core of his very being. He traces the filth of this wicked deed all the way back to its source And he has to confess that the whole river is polluted right up to the spring from whence it came. This is a confession by David that's contrary to what we often ourselves say and what we often hear in the counseling room. Well, okay, I sinned, I screwed up, I made a mistake, but that's not really me. That's not really, I didn't do that. That's not how I am. David's saying, that's exactly how I am. I am rotten to the core. And that's how we ought to see original sin. We are sinners by nature. Our innermost desires, all of them, are corrupt and sinful. Our fundamental character is base and wicked. And far from being an excuse for our sin, that is the main reason we deserve condemnation. Our wicked acts of sin are merely a reflection of our wicked character. It's who we are in the innermost core of our being that makes us most worthy of condemnation. And so David's statement, I was shapen in iniquity, that's not an excuse for his sin. It's a confession that he is altogether sinful. David isn't saying, I couldn't help it, I was born that way. And he doesn't say, I can't believe I did that, that's not really like me at all. He's acknowledging that sinfulness defines who he is. He's coming to grips with the real depth of his guilt. He's not making excuses. He's making a confession. He's looking for pardon, not pity. Now, as I prepared this message, it occurred to me that there might be someone who's tempted to think these truths apply only to the worst of sinners. You know, you say to yourself, well, uh, this is a good admonition for anybody who's involved in serious sin. And it's certainly a good thing David repented. I mean, look at what he was involved in, adultery, conspiracy, murder. It's no wonder he felt the way he did. I'm thankful to God that I've never committed adultery or murder. And if you find yourself thinking that way, I would first urge you to study the doctrine of original sin and remember that you are as infected with sinful human depravity as David was. And apart from the grace of God you would fall into sins that equal or worse that are equal or worse than what David did and remember that the lust that that lust carries the same kind of guilt as adultery according to Jesus and anger is morally no better than murder regardless of the flagrancy of your sinning there is one important regard in which you and I and all of us are every bit as guilty as David We were all shapen in iniquity and sinners from the moment of our conception. And if you've never come to the point where you see that is the real issue, that's what you need redemption for. You've never really come to grips with where you stand before God, and you need to be born again. Now, I have to move on. If you're following the outline, we pointed out that in this psalm, number one, David is occupied with sin's guilt, not its consequences. Number two, his focus is upward not inward. Number three, he seeks pardon, not pity. Now, finally, he prays for cleansing, not a cover-up. He prays for cleansing, not a cover-up. Notice how much of David's prayer consists of praying that God would blot out his sin, Verse 1, blot out my transgressions. Here, he uses language that an accountant would use. Blot out my sin. He's saying, erase it from the ledger. That's what the Hebrew expression means. Eradicate any trace of it. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. That conveys the idea of washing a dirty stain out of a garment. Verse 2 again, and cleanse me from my sin. That speaks of the kind of purification a leper would seek. It suggests that David saw his sin as a moral leprosy from which he desperately needed cleansing. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop refers to a a broom-like branch of a tree that was used to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice all over the sanctuary. You know, we read about the sprinkling of blood. If you actually saw it, you'd think maybe sprinkling is too mild of a word. They'd take this this hyssop, which was a large branch with broom-like feathers on the end of it, dip it into a bowl of blood and then shake it all around everything. It was a mess. And David is praying when he says, Purge me with hyssop. He's recognizing the need for blood atonement. Verse 9 hide thy face from my sins. That underscores the great shame David felt at knowing that he was covered with such filthiness and his sin was uncovered before the face of God. And he pleads with God to hide his face from that. Verse 9, blot out all mine iniquities. And here, notice he comes full circle almost to the same expression he used in verse 1. Why the repetition of all these prayers for cleansing he says it in practically every way you could possibly think of to pray for cleansing here's what Spurgeon said about that this is spurgeon quote it is not enough to blot out the sin his person is defiled and he fain would be purified he would have god himself to cleanse him for none but god could do it effectually the washing must be thorough it must be repeated therefore he cries "...multiply to wash me. The dye is in itself immovable, and I, the sinner, have lain long in it till the crimson is deeply ingrained. But, Lord, wash and wash and wash again till the last stain is gone and not a trace of my defilement is left." Spurgeon goes on to say, "...the hypocrite is content if his garments be washed, but the truly repentant one cries, "'Wash me.'" The careless soul is content with a nominal cleansing, but the truly awakened conscience desires a real and practical washing, and that of a most complete and efficient kind. It is as if the psalmist said, Lord, if washing will not do, try some other process. If water avails not, let fire, let anything be tried, so that I may but be purified. Rid me of my sin by some means, by any means, by every means, only... Do purify me completely and leave no guilt upon my soul. I can't match Spurgeon's eloquence, but I hope you get the point of this. There's a reason for the repetition of all these pleas for cleansing. That's what David wants here. He wants cleansing from his sin. He's he's not looking for a cover-up. And remember, from the time David had first begun to weave this web of sin and deceit, he had been wholly consumed with covering it up, concealing it. And now he doesn't even care about that anymore. He doesn't pray what I might pray. Lord, don't let anybody find out about this. He wants cleansing, not a cover-up. David understood the truth of verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit... A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And furthermore, he understood that a broken heart and a broken spirit were things he could not concoct on his own out of the force of sheer self-will. In verse 5, he acknowledges that he's constitutionally sinful, he's depraved in his very nature. Think about that for a moment. It means, what I keep saying, that a penitent heart is the most unnatural thing in the world. It means a broken spirit and a broken heart were completely beyond David's power to summon, and that's why he turned to the Lord. That's why in verse 10, he prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Because and this is the main point of all of this. Only divine grace can accomplish in David's heart the work that needs to be done. In order for David's heart and spirit to be broken sufficiently to make an acceptable sacrifice to God, God himself would have to break David. And if, God, if David's spirit would ever be clean enough or his heart pure enough to restore to him the joy and gladness he once knew, he knew that nothing short of a creative act of God could do it. Some people think they can change their own hearts at will, you know? You find yourself thinking this way. I'll sin now and repent later. David knew you can't do that because repentance is a gift of God. Acts 11, verse eighteen, Second 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, those two verses both speak of repentance as a work of divine grace that is granted to sinners by God's sovereign hand. And that may be the key lesson of this psalm. Throughout the psalm, David is pleading for God to do for him what he could not do for himself. And that's the whole point of atonement, isn't it? And God answered David's prayer. Psalm 34, therefore, celebrates the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And that's the very point Paul picks up on in his great discourse on justification by faith in Romans 4. That David celebrates the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, which tells us God did not impute these sins to David. Instead, He imputed them to Christ, who paid the penalty for them. And in return, Christ's righteousness was imputed to David. And that gets us to the very heart of the gospel. It explains how someone who was as guilty as David could find grace and mercy in the eyes of the Lord. And the most wonderful thing about this psalm is that that very same mercy is extended to me and to you and to anyone who will seek it in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that our repentance almost always falls short. We pray for your grace. Give us authentic repentance. Give us true faith. Like David, we need cleansing, and we need it desperately. Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to confess it and to embrace it and to declare it with our lips and our behavior. We
0: pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What'd you think?